0: We're reading from Mark 10, 1 through 12. You can find that on page 845 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given us. It is a gift from you that allows us to live righteously and please you we thank you that you give us the freedom to worship like this to have a bible that we can even study we thank you for this country and we pray for our leaders as well we thank you for this church and mr cody our pastor we pray that as he comes you speak through him guide through guide him And uh, allow us to hear and learn from what he has to say. We praise you in all things and in the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's
1: nothing like preaching from a new pulpit when you find that the new pulpit underneath you has spilled your water and you must preach off a wet manuscript. Maybe this is God's trying to tell me something. I should not have gotten rid of the big pulpit because that never happened with the big pulpit. now been baptized. <laughs> Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10 if you are not there already, and by a quick word of explanation, let me say that I was originally intending to preach uh, Mark chapter 10 and Matthew 19 as two separate texts, uh, but as I said in the word of introduction, just could not uh, separate them, they're the same the situation going on. Uh, spoken of by different authors, and so I felt it would be best and most helpful to us if we combine these two texts. The topic of divorce is a sensitive topic. It is not an easy one. It is not an easy one to talk about. It is not an easy one to listen to. It is not an easy one to study, and that is because divorce is painful. And I uh, would have no doubt that every single person in here, whether a young child or to the oldest, has been affected some way by divorce and affected painfully. Because all divorce involves sin. Jay Adams has said, divorce, when proper, always is occasioned by one someone's sin. And at its best, then, divorce always brings misery and hurt. Now that does not mean to say, as we will look at the text this morning, that all divorce is sinful but simply that all divorce involves sin and sin is painful. Divorce is is painful because it involves the breaking of a relationship, namely the marriage relationship. And when the marriage relationship is broken, that oftentimes brings in collateral damage. You have children who are affected. You have friends who are affected. You have family and churches and coworkers. And we shouldn't be uh, those who are, are, are flippant, about the topic of divorce or to be unrealistic about the pain. Even this week, on Wednesday, Lucy got a text from a dear friend of ours here in town who's been dealing with her brother, whose brother's wife has left him unexpectedly. The pain of divorce is all around us. And yet we must submit ourselves to the Bible and its instruction on all these matters over and above our experience But this is also a difficult topic because it's really almost exegetically in the way we study Mark 10 and Matthew 19, impossible to deal with, especially in one sermon, all that is going on in these passages. For instance, we could approach Mark 10, 1 through 10 this morning from the point of view of those contemplating divorce and telling you don't do it. Or we could approach Mark 10, 1 through 10 of those uh, with those who are healing from divorce and instructing those people. Or we could approach Mark 10, 1 through 10, to those who are preparing for marriage and are in single years. And not just exegetically, but practically, all the scenarios that we could come up with this morning that are unique and have intricate aspects to them would require careful study and lots and lots of time, way more time than we're going to certainly fit into in one sermon. Now, this is also difficult because there are differing views on this topic and many of these, if not most of the differing views, are well-studied and offered by well-respected churchmen. And yet, we, again, we must submit ourselves to the Bible and its instruction on all matters over and above our experience. And so, I trust that you all will be good Bereans and we will look deeply into this topic. I'm not going to be able to address everything this morning that might come into your mind on this topic encourage you, uh, come Wednesday night we can look more carefully at these things and yet I do want to encourage you that in our discussions about this, whether you're discussing with me or you're discussing with your wife or you're around the table this afternoon or with a friend, that we must approach these topics as every topic with an open mind and an open Bible. Because oftentimes we want to approach these difficult topics with a closed mind and an open Bible or with an open Bible and a closed mind. But we must do it with an open mind and an open Bible, signifying then that our mind is being instructed by the word of God on all matters. Last week, we looked at marriage. And I would encourage you, as we looked about last week, and just as a reminder, that marriage lasts only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God are you still married. And therefore, marriage then not only lasts by the grace of God, but must function by the grace of God. Grace, therefore, must be extended to one another to imitate the sacrificial love of God toward us. If God has extended to us grace while we were yet sinners, we cannot, therefore, withhold grace to our fellow brothers and sisters who have been divorced as if their sin has some uh, great big uh, deadliness to us that is outside of our deadly sin. Now, divorce... And the sin that sometimes goes with it, oftentimes does, can cause greater horizontal damage. But we must recognize this morning that all sin has vertical and eternal consequences, namely, eternal punishment under the wrath of God in hellfire. I've had to, just in my study this week, repent of my sin and how I view people that have been divorced. Because it's oftentimes uh, pastors, especially even, in my, even myself included, we include the sin of divorce at the top of sins of America. You've probably heard that. We've got abortion, and we've got rampant divorce in this country. And yet we also do so at the neglect of sins mentioned in the Bible that are, for the most part, the root of many sinful divorces, if not most of them. And you can find those in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And so what we would urge this morning is we must have biblical balance. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make divorced fellow saints, of which there are in our midst even this morning, out to be secondarily secondary class citizens of the heavenly kingdom. As if they're forever marked and banished from grace and use in the kingdom. In fact, some of the strongest marriages represented at FCF over the years in, of our history have been marked by divorce in their past. All of those marriages... A living testimony to God's forgiveness and grace extended through Christ that washes away all sin. And we don't have to look far into the Bible to see how divorce affects and yet how divorce can be even overcome by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Look at the lineage of Christ. Rahab, who is a prostitute, doesn't mention her divorce, but certainly not living biblically. The sin of adultery here, and yet it marks the fact that our God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. However, we also see that our God is never changing. So whether you're in your first marriage or you're in your fourth marriage, God intends for you to remain as you are in marriage with that person mirroring and testifying to the transformative power of Jesus Christ that provides the ability to display the glory of unity between a man and a woman, a selfless unity provided by and enabled by the work of Jesus Christ for all that believe. I'm still in my introduction. In 2001, in The Atlantic, a publication, a man by the name of David, a Jew, wrote an article detailing his experience in a jazz club in Village Vanguard, the jazz club Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. And he talks about how as he sits down and he's listening to these musicians play, he notices the trumpeter. And he looks vaguely familiar. He can't quite make out who it is. And yet the more the man plays, the more he is struck with the idea that this is one of, if not the greatest jazz trumpetist of our time, Wynton Marcellus. And so he views him and he looks at him and he watches him and he begins to realize that is Wynton Marcellus. And this is what he wrote. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter, who I could now see was indeed Marcellus, but who no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, unaccompanied. Written by Victor Young, a film score composer for a 1930s romance, the piece could bring out the sadness in any scene, and Marcellus appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs at points, nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marcellus played the final phrase, the title statement in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until, at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off. Blaring a rapid sing-song melody of electronic bleeps, and people started giggling and picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled, Marcellus paused for a beat, motionless, and his eyebrows arched. I scrawled the writer on a sheet of paper, magic ruined. Oftentimes, two young people who sit down and they're preparing for marriage, they never think or consider marriage. It's not intended at the outset of their marriage. Many times parents see their children get married and never think that their marriage, that marriage of their child might end in divorce. And actually, in many ways, oftentimes, it it mirrors these jazz-type pieces, and it comes and it goes, and it has all this beautiful tune to it, and everything seems to be going well. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Something happens, shatters the beauty of marriage, and divorce comes onto the scene. We need to approach this topic of divorce with Christian maturity because there are many traditional points that are held on this topic. And yet who anyone who has ever studied this topic in depth will quickly come to an understanding of the complexity of this issue and the need to give grace to others in how we handle our potential differences. Just by way of example, quickly, by way of these differences, FCF has held the position on divorce and remarriage by John Piper since our inception. And yet John's, just by way of highlighting the differences, John's position was not held by the leadership or by his congregation of his church while he was a senior pastor, nor were all the elders even in agreement on the issue. I have wrongly at times thought John Piper did not believe divorce was biblical at a times. And yet In fact, he does believe that there are biblical grounds for acceptable divorce. Others believe that there are never biblical grounds for divorce. And yet others believe that there are biblical grounds, and to be quite clear, they're constrained, very narrow, and that there are then biblical grounds for remarriage after divorce. And if all that confuses you, it's supposed to. It's intended to confuse you. It's intended to show us clearly that we need Christian charity and grace in how we deal with and discuss these issues. Oftentimes, this difficult topic drives us to look away from the word of God. We would rather, and I would rather not preach this. There are way easier texts to preach than the topic of divorce. And yet, if we look away at these difficult topics, we rob ourselves of the truth of God's word that helps direct us in these things. And so let's look now at scripture and let it be our authority this morning. Mark 10, 1 through 12. If you're there, now let's look at the first two verses. That gives us some context. And the context of Mark 10, 1 through 12, and even Matthew 19, 1 through 12, is very helpful for us in understanding what's going to take place. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, as it was his custom, he taught them. This context is one of conflict. Jesus is again teaching and as has been taught before and Matthew tells us he's not only teaching but he's also healing. And many people are coming. They're recognizing that Jesus could do something they could not. They could, he could heal and he could teach. He was an authority. And yet, as always is the case, they're not only those who Are in support of him and want to hear from Christ, there are those who are in opposition. There are those who can't see what Christ could offer and do, even more who he was as the Son of God, and they therefore come in opposition to him. And just out of the gate here, first two verses, we ought to be reminded, brothers and sisters, of the kind provision of grace by our loving Heavenly Father that is the truth that you and I both showed up today. That's a remarkable means and sense of grace of God on us that we showed up today to church. Notwithstanding the temptation that you may have had not to come or even the desire to maybe not come, and yet by his grace, you came here this morning. And that's a sign of his grace because he's bestowed on you, on us, the gift of faith to see Christ as beautiful and lovely, to see him as kind and caring to see him as a savior and friend, to see him as as the high priest, and yet as the king. And we see the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, only by the grace of God, and that should fill our souls with delight. Because we haven't chosen to look to him by our own merit, by our own desire, but rather he's taken us and he's turned us and he's given us eyes of faith to see the wonder and beauty of christ and yet there are those who don't see and the pharisees represent those who don't see and it is right and proper for us to pray even that god would give them the eyes to see as he has done for us so there's this context of conflict you have the people who are enjoying jesus and then you have the pharisees that come and they're questioning jesus and you see that in verses three and four They come and they question him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They come, as verse 2 says, in order to test him. Now, we're not sure what they were really at the root of, why they were seeking to test him. But it could be that they were thinking, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, we know the religious leaders were trying to destroy Christ. And they could be thinking, ah, let's get him on the topic that required John the Baptist to be headed. Remember, John the Baptist, affront against Herod, speaking out against his marriage, false marriage, his adultery, loses his life for the sake of truth there. It could be that the religious leaders here are thinking, if we get him on this topic, John was beheaded. We're trying to destroy him. Mark 3 tells us that. Maybe this is a way to do it. We're not sure. And yet their question is one to test, is wanting to trap him. And they, they question him regarding the law as the trap. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it's helpful for us to understand that there, are, there were two views on, the, on, the, on what constituted a proper divorce in that day. There were two lines of teaching. There was a the conservative line and there was a the liberal line. The conservative line says, if the woman does something shameful... Whatever that might be, though it falls short of adultery or marital unfaithfulness, which Le- uh, Leviticus 22 tells us is punishable by death, meaning, so something has happened that is shameful, doesn't describe what it is. something shameful, but it's not unfaithfulness. Leviticus 24 says that you could put them away, divorce them. That was the conservative view. Something shameful. The liberal view said, well, that, that's too restrictive. Something shameful. But we need, we need something a little more loose. And so they had all kinds of things that they gave as reasons for divorce. If the wife burned the dinner, she's gone. If someone came along that was more attractive, you could divorce. If your wife became a little too portly, you could divorce. And all these other myriad things that these, this liberal view came and brought in as reasons for divorce. And the reasons for divorce were well debated because the reason for divorce was ambiguous, something indecent, repulsive. And yet, what was that indecent, repulsive thing? And the question probably by the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 10 is the question of which side is Jesus going to come down on, the conservative side or the liberal side? Because either way, we think we can trap him. And as we will see here in a minute, he really sides with neither of them. Now, we're not going to look deeply at Deuteronomy 24. You can look at that in your free time this afternoon. I think it is helpful for us, though, to make a few remarks on Deuteronomy 24 that would help us understand Mark 10 and Matthew 19 because Christ is referring back to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 is written to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, regulating their lives in accordance with imitating their holy God. We talked about that in First Light a few weeks ago, that the law in Leviticus was given as a way to regulate God's people and how they were to imitate their holy God. We know that divorce was taking place. That's why it was regulated in Deuteronomy 24. It wasn't as if Moses said, oh, by the way, and there's something like divorce, and he created it. It was already happening. It was actually a regulation of divorce that happened in Deuteronomy 24. So it wasn't as if God didn't see it happening or as if he turned a blind eye and said, no, that's not happening. I'm not gonna deal with that. Rather, God graciously did deal with sin. He dealt with it accordingly, namely through the law to even constrain the sin and move the people toward purity and holiness. So if you actually study Deuteronomy 24, it's not required that a man could, was to divorce his wife if some indecency came into play was actually spoken of as an option not as a requirement. Moses giving the law in Deuteronomy 24 actually provided some protection to the vulnerable. A man could leave. It was a patriarchal society so a man could just leave and yet the woman was left in a vulnerable position. A woman at that time the husband left because she burned the the dinner and yet there could have been a, quite a bit of uh, even societal pressure on her. Is that all you did? Burn the dinner? And so there was some, some structure provided that actually provided some protection to the vulnerable in financial ways, social ways, relational ways. There was a process that was put in place that that required some thinking. The man just didn't say, don't want you anymore. He had to think about it. He actually had to write out a bill of divorce and and then give accountability to the leaders as to why the divorce was happening. And it's sort of interesting that even in today's society, we have what's called no-fault divorce, and it mirrors very much the liberal view. A no-fault divorce can be granted, we're told, on grounds such as irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. Irreconcilable differences, whatever that is. Incompatibility, whatever that is. Or after a period of separation, whatever that is. So we must be clear here that if we go, we're looking at Mark 10, Matthew 19, that the culture that is taking place in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, and and us as well, in our culture, are always on the lookout for loopholes, Right? The Bible speaks loud and clear that there were no loopholes on this issue and yet and yet there's this desire to look for loopholes on this issue. And to look for loopholes is to look in the wrong direction. In conversations about divorce brothers and sisters, we should mirror the way Christ talked about it. They're looking for loopholes, what's the first thing he talks about? Permanence of marriage. That's where we must start. We don't start at divorce and then work our way back. We start at marriage. And many, uh, many, many do this in our day and age. They approach the word with the desire of where are the loopholes to get out of my marriage rather than how can I keep my marriage together as designed by God, one man, one woman, for life. We must be those who encourage friends, family. Let's look at Scripture and let's look at the priorities that Scripture places on these things as of first importance. So the Pharisees come, come to Christ with the desire to know when can we break a marriage? And Christ addresses the truth of keeping marriage together. So we should be those who are to look, look to what honors our Heavenly Father, not what is convenient or desirable. We are to seek to be holy in imitation to our Holy Heavenly Father. Through Christ we have been granted positional holiness. And by His grace we are pursuing growth in holiness. So here they come to trip Him up. They come to see how can we break marriage? Christ is looking, how can we keep marriage? Verses five through nine, we see this next portion of scripture here in Mark 10. And if you're taking notes, you might just note the headline that marriage is to be permanent. Marriage is to be permanent. Note Christ says, and Jesus said to him, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And really, the high point of Christ's teaching here, found in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Allowed by, permitted by, the hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. John Murray on this statement of let not man separate, says, divorce is contrary to the divine institution, contrary to the nature of marriage, and contrary to the divine action by which the union is effected. It is precisely here that its wickedness becomes singularly apparent. It is the the sundering, it is the breaking by man of a union God has constituted. Divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraven by the hand of God. My former pastor, when I was in high school in Bloomington, Indiana, says this, manhood is not privilege, but its opposite, responsibility. As Christ died for his bride, the church, so man takes up his own cross and dies for the mother of his children, his lover, his bride. The story of marriage is man dying so woman may give life and nurture it. Where that story is not told, marriage does not exist. It's not a private story for Christians. It's the timeless, transcultural story of sex written by God in the very DNA of his universe. To preach and live this story is to preach and live the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should have a high and wonderful and radiantly glorious view of marriage as Christ tells us that it is. That we should be so enthralled with the gospel that is pictured in marriage that we're more dedicated to marriage and against divorce, even to the point that divorce is not an option in how we view marriage. Christ here takes them back to the original intent and design, meaning the permanence of marriage. God brings a man and a woman together for for the furthering of the gospel to all the nations, and we are not to mess with what God brings together. That's the primary teaching of Jesus on this subject in verse 9 of Mark 10, that we are to stay in marriage for the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, is some, this brings about vital importance to the church. It brings about really the fact that the church should be very, very important in the life of every single Christian. Because you, provide, you, get a, you gain accountability for your marriage. You have pastoral help. You have loving brothers and sisters. You even, if necessary, have biblical restorative church discipline. And, and ultimately, because if you're in the church, you're going to hear from the word of God. And you get the continual teaching from the word of God that says, God is the, namely, the only faithful husband. That's pictured in Hosea. Therefore, as his bride, the church, we submit to thee faithful husband. Now let me say very clearly that if you have been divorced unlawfully in your life, you have been divorced unlawfully in your life, that your divorce unlawfully as sin was not the first or the last sin that would condemn you to hell but like all other sin, no matter how slight or heinous in the eyes of men it might be, is an affront against the one true God and therefore is deserving of and required to be punished by death. And if you are here today, whether divorced unlawfully or not, and yet you have not seen your sin, the breaking of God's perfect nature, the breaking of God's perfect law, if you've not seen that your sin requires you to be punished by death, eternal death, then I beg you for the next two and a half minutes, listen carefully to me. Because sin is not a small matter. Sin is a deadly matter, a deadly eternal matter. And it's precisely this deadly eternal matter because God is perfect and all sin is imperfect. And for God to allow any, any imperfection in his presence is unthinkable. The perfection of God, as light repels darkness at unthinkable speeds, the perfection of God must obliterate with immense deadly accuracy all that is imperfect, namely sin. And it is here, our sin, our imperfection, and God's perfection and holiness and how all those things work together and God's righteousness and justice that everything for the world around us is seemingly lost. Because imperfect people have as much capability to make themselves perfect as a dead man has the ability to make himself alive. So if you're here and you recognize maybe for the first time that your sin has rendered the verdict, verdict of guilty upon your life, punishable by death, you only have one recourse. You only have one path available to you. And that is to throw yourself headlong completely upon the mercy of God and to plead for grace. Because God's not just perfect. And he's not just just, and he's not just holy, but he's also loving, and he's gracious, and he's kind. And what seems to be and characteristics are all completely knit together in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, fully God, and yet born of the Virgin Mary, fully man. Jesus Christ, sent by God as the perfect Son of God. To be born as the son of man in order that he might live as we live. So Christ came and he ate as we eat. And Christ was tempted as we are tempted. And yet he was tempted and lived without sin. To live on this earth perfectly, not just because, not just because it was an idea, but because from the beginning, it was plan A by God to reconcile and restore a relationship with sinful mankind to himself. And Christ did come, and he did suffer, and he did die on a cross, and he was buried in a grave. And yet, praise the Lord, that grave could not hold him. Because of his perfect death, he conquered sin And he conquered death, proving so by rising from the dead on the third day. And then he walked. He walked on the earth for 40 days. And he witnessed and was witnessed by many people. And then he ascended to heaven where he is even now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And one day, any day, maybe today, I pray today, as I'm sure you do as well. Christ will return. Sent by God, the Heavenly Father to gather into himself all those who believe upon his name, to spend eternity with him in perfect harmony in heaven. So really the question, before we even get to divorce, but using divorce as a platform for the gospel, the question that bears more weight than any, than any other for all of us this morning is, what is the state of your soul for eternity if Christ were to return right now? By his grace, if you do not know Christ, you can spend eternity in heaven by simply repenting of your sin and believing on the perfect work of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of your sin. It's not difficult. It's a free gift. And it's a free gift to all those who will call upon God in faith. And I beg of you, if you have not called upon God in faith and you are not walking in repentance, that you would do so this morning. If you want to know more about that, I stand at the back of this sanctuary after each sermon and there are others in the pew to your right and left that can answer that question for you. But I encourage you to weigh carefully the state of your eternal soul. And yet what amazing grace is salvation from sin and a relationship with God, amen? Amen. It is amazing grace that we have that relationship with God. And so amazing is that grace that even if you are here today and you have been unlawfully divorced, you are in sin from your sin, that that sin is not the unpardonable sin. And that it's it's the sin that, like all others, for the believer is covered by the all-sufficient shed blood of Jesus Christ. Once for all, eternity. And now, as a believer... You must and can claim the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want you to hear that clearly. If you, in your past, have sin and you realize, maybe even this morning, that you have been unlawfully divorced, run to Christ. Now, if marriage is designed for permanence, we're still in the permanence of marriage, if marriage is designed for permanence, then it may be very helpful for you as a single this morning to consider some application in preparing for marriage that will be permanent so if I look at you and you're some of the only single people in the audience know that this is for you from the word of God as your pastor first of all it probably goes without saying but in preparation for a godly lifetime of marriage to one man or to one woman the first prerequisite is that that person must be a believer we know this But it's in order that you are to be married to a believer if for no other than the simplest reason that combining an unbeliever and a believer bring about two very differing reasons for existing on this earth. One is for the gospel of Jesus Christ, believer, and one is for self, unbeliever. And trying to combine those things is very, very difficult. Now, another point of application may be for helpful for you is this, John Calvin, and this is you've probably heard me say it before and as a pastor especially, it's one of my favorites he says this, you cannot have God as your father and the church not as your mother. Now you could understand why as a pastor, I like that quote, right? That makes you come and sit down. But here's what he's actually saying here, is that the church is that which we are to submit to, it's the bride of Christ So if the, if the local church and in its authority is to be the embassy of the heavenly kingdom in the sense that as the embassy were to guard the gospel and were to proclaim the message of the kingdom, the gospel, then, then should not the church here be highly valued and even delighted in by the Christian? Because it certainly was for Christ. He came and died for her, right? So if you're, if you're still tracking with me here, what I'm encouraging you on to think about is if you were to marry a believer... Check, we got that one. Then another good indicator of a godly marriage, and and I think it's clear, but just using the, the verbiage of Calvin here, is you should look for an individual that is lovingly submitted to his or her mother, meaning the church. Because it's in the church, both through the preaching of the gospel and the relationships lived out in the light of the gospel, that a young married couple grows in their understanding of how their marriage should work. The the church is there when the times get rough, when things get a little weak, the church is there. There's encouragement each week from the word and relationships. And just like uh, your physical mother comforts some things that times hurt and help provide ways to heal, the church can do that as well in struggling marriages. And my personal belief and yours probably as well is that there would be far less divorces in Christian marriages if people would be more joyfully, biblically submitting themselves to the church. And it's in trying to play rogue as the Christian life that oftentimes you come into problems, even problems in marriage that tend and can lead to divorce. So now that I've got all the singles listening to me, unless I lose you that are currently married, uh, there's application for you as well. When I was in high school at 16 years old, one of the sweetest relationships in the church was an older retired couple retiring from the mission field in Asia. And they just delighted in having young people in their home. And all we would do is we'd eat and then we'd sit around in their little living room with all their antiquities from all these Asian places that they had gone and minister the gospel. And they would talk to us and we would ask them questions and they'd ask us questions. It was just delightful times with them. And, and it really was a, a beautiful picture of the gospel and, and the service that they rendered in, in the sense of delighting in gospel relationships, irregardless of age. And so wherever you are in, in your marriage, say if you have little ones or if you're, if you're older and retired or if you don't have any children left at home, uh, there's application for here, here for you that you have a wonderful opportunity to develop in the next generation the, bo- the joy of being in gospel community. And you can help foster that love for being in the church. That is oftentimes not there for young people. Marriage is to be permanent. God has designed it to be so. We should be about those who are holding up the importance of marriage. What well, therefore God has joined together, we should not separate. But let's look at the last two verses, 10 through 12. And I have titled this in closing here, Unlawful Divorce is Sin and Unlawful Divorce causes sin. I want you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew 19. This is where it's helpful for us to look at these two texts side by side and you might find it uh, helpful to you just to have Matthew 19 open and your finger in Mark 12 and flip back and forth. Matthew 19 speaks of something that Mark does not talk about. Matthew 19 speaks about something that is not in Matthew 5. And Matthew 19 speaks about something that Luke does not speak about. And so it's helpful here to get an additional understanding of what is happening. Look at verse 9 of Matthew 19. This is oftentimes described as one of the biblical grounds for divorce. This is what it says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now let me help us understand this. This teaching in Matthew 19 as well as in Mark chapter 10 is the teaching of Christ on divorce and remarriage. And I want to make very clear that it's not as if Christ is just taking the Old Testament teaching of Deuteronomy 24 and simply uh, communicating or transferring over the Mosaic law into the New Testament. He's not doing that at all. In fact... Instead of going to the Mosaic law, Christ actually raises the bar for grounds of divorce due to the importance of marriage and the picture that the marriage holds of the gospel. He raises the bar, as we'll see here in just a minute. Mark 10, verse 11, Luke 16, 18, seem to be in contradiction to Matthew 19 because Mark and Luke both say if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery. And there's there's no grounds for but if, as you see in verse 9 of 19, Matthew 19. So how do these two things relate to one another? Well, again, context is helpful for us here. The context, again, being that this is the question of testing. The question of the Pharisees regarding the permission by Moses in Leviticus 24. And it's helpful for us to understand, by just by way of all the Bible's teaching, now, that not every divorce as described in the Bible, is necessarily described as sinful. You have Mary and Joseph, who Joseph was right to put her away quietly. It may be very helpful to you to remember that at one time, God, in his description of his relationship with Israel in Jeremiah 3, divorces Israel due to their adultery. And yet the wonder of the gospel, he actually, after sending them to Babylon, woos them back and restores that relationship with them, forgives them. And so for you, if you have been, uh, if you've been, somebody has divorced you and the pain that is there, I would just encourage you to meditate on Jeremiah 3 and realizing that God is well acquainted with your pain. God is well acquainted with your pain and can even minister to you in it. Matthew 19, however, Christ is addressing This question with new and radical teaching. He's not canceling out the law, but actually fulfilling the law. In saying, in the new system, going back to the old as well, Genesis 2, all divorce and remarriage is adultery. Unless there is adultery, then there are biblical grounds for divorce. Notice what he's doing here. He's elevating the law. He took it back to the original tent in Genesis 2. He took it back to the permanence of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And yet he also introduces grace in the occasion of sin. And you're asking, where does he introduce grace? Look what he says. Let no man separate except for adultery. Now, it's not required that you separate, but is permissible. Leviticus 24 says, did not have any exception clause for adultery. In fact, if in Leviticus 24, you were an adulterer, you were dead. They would punish you by death. And Christ is actually saying here in Mark 10 and Luke 16, that in the light of Leviticus 24 and Genesis 2, all divorce and remarriage constitutes the sin of adultery. And yet, here in Matthew 19, he provides grace in the sense that If there is adultery, there is no longer a requirement for death and yet permissible by the offending party to write a certificate of divorce. This was radical. This was radical in that day and even for us as well today that for the very reason that adultery and marriage at that time was punished by death, here Christ is saying no, no longer death but permitted though not prescribed divorce. And that's not to say though That marriage won't have sin in marriage. That sin won't be in marriage and that marriage will be easy. And yet it also is noting here for us that God has provided grace through Christ in the form of forgiveness. All I want you to do is take your eyes and I I want you to shift your eyes from Mark 19, verse 9 to Matthew 18. Corresponding passage. Shift your eyes over and look at the passage. What is the context of Matthew 19? It is that concept of forgiveness this whole parable here of forgiving 70 times 7 we can actually now not have to get a divorce in fact I would encourage most not to if not the vast 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 majority because we have an opportunity now that was not afforded them but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ we can now extend forgiveness to one another in modeling the gospel And yet that doesn't mean that we should take divorce lightly. Malachi 2 tells us that God hates divorce. Certainly we see that by his, even his description of himself in Jeremiah, that he, he does not hate all divorce, as we have seen in how he divorces Israel, but that he hates the sin that involves divorce, and that he hates the damage of sin caused by divorce. And so we want to emphasize That forgiveness and reconciliation between sinning spouses is the preferred method to separation or divorce even where adultery has occurred. And that is because of Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So why is it not prescribed because of Matthew 18, forgiveness. Biblically, divorce is an option for two reasons, according to scripture. We see this one here in Matthew 19 for adultery. The other reason is for divorce. Uh, The other reason for divorce is abandonment by the unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll look at that next week. But notice what I said here. Divorce is an option. And this is what the Bible teaches. It's an option, not required. It's an option, and it should never be for the believer the first option or the second, or the third, or the fourth. The first option for the Christian should always be forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation as a way of modeling the gospel. And because forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation is now enabled by those who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we, brothers and sisters, have the joy to know that we are not only reconciled with Christ with God, we are also reconciled have the ability to reconcile with one another horizontally. Now, you've been very patient, but in the last few minutes, let me just make these notes of comment. Those of us who have never gotten a divorce do only, are only still involved in our marriage and do only continue with our marriage by the grace of God. Every one of us that are married, made vows to our wives and our wives made vows to us that the very next day, if not the very next hour, we broke. And we made those vows not because we could keep them perfectly, but rather as an acknowledgement that those biblical vows are the standard. And only God as the perfect husband has kept the standard. And therefore we lean entirely upon his grace to make it through another day in marriage. And if you have been divorced, you lean entirely upon God's grace to get through another day. And if you're single, you lean entirely upon God's grace to get through another day. And so as a church, we must fight for biblical marriage. But as a church that sees the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only merit we have before a holy God, we acknowledge that for those who have been unbiblically divorced and unbiblically remarried or those who have been unbiblically divorced and are currently single that just like me, The grace of God is all that keeps you and I going. And even that as a church, one of the most beautiful ways we can model the gospel to a lost world is in how we relate to one another. So when this world around us walks in those double doors and sees singles sitting with those who've been married 50 plus years or those who have been divorced or those who've been married a few years, or those who are engaged or dating, all of us are sitting together, all of us are fellowshipping with one another, not on the basis of of life history, but upon the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. What a beautiful picture of the grace of God. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there are now no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, but Pastor, your, your view of marriage is really hard. Let me just direct in closing your eyes to verse 10 of Matthew 19, because that's exactly what the disciples say. If such is the case of a man with his my, wife, better not get married. Too hard. To hold up, to, 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 to have marriage remain permanent. Too hard to mirror the gospel of Jesus Christ as laid out in marriage. Too hard. We should rather not get married. And yet you see, verse 11 through 12 of Matthew 19, how grace is provided. Now everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So to those whom have are in positions, grace is provided. For there are eunuchs who have been born, been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Meaning, you're able to receive it by the grace of God. So if you are here today and realize that your marriage is not as delightful as you know it ought to be, I plead for you to run to Christ. And if your marriage is on the rocks, I would plead for you to run to Christ. And if you're here today and you realize that you have been unlawfully divorced, I plead for you to run to Christ. And if you are here today and realize that you should have never gotten remarried due to an unlawful divorce, you must run to Christ. And the same for the single person or the married person. It's at the cross of Christ where we see hour by hour and minute by minute, and if need be, even second by second, the love of God for us and the grace provided for our every need, however difficult. Now, let me close. I've said that three times now. Let me close by going back to this story in Greenwich Village, The Trumpeter. He stopped with eyebrows raised, and everybody began to giggle. And this is how the story concludes. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marcellus replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. And then he repeated it. And he began improvising variations on the tune. And the audience slowly came back to him. And in a few minutes, he realized he resolved the improvisation which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down back to a ballad tempo. It ended up exactly where he had left off, with you. And the ovation was tremendous. So brothers and sisters, let us be clear this morning. We serve a God who can take an absolute train wreck and by his grace, fashion and masterpiece reflecting his glory for eternity. Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy topic and I know I have not dealt with all that is there and all the questions that are raised. But I trust that by your grace and through the power of your spirit you will minister the word in accordance with the need of, the, of each heart that is here. But may we clearly understand, Father, that you are faithful to us as our Heavenly Father, the only faithful husband. May we clearly understand, Father, that you are Commitment to us is that which will never shake, never change for the believer. And may we clearly understand, Father, that you have provided all the grace that for those of us in marriage, wherever we are and whatever our past may be, you have provided us the grace if we will but turn for You, turn to you that will allow what may seem like an utter train wreck to become a beautiful picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, Father, no matter where we are, whether single, young, married, divorced, older, wherever we are, we now, for this week, Father, commit ourselves to throw ourselves headlong into your word and upon your grace, knowing that there we will find the ability to take the next step, to walk out this Christian life. Trusting, Father, that this day will not last forever and that one day your son will return and we will be caught up with him in glory. We will have that consummation of the the heavenly marriage and it will be a perfect one. One that we will enjoy with no tears, no sorrow, forever. Father, I pray for FCF that we would understand these topics more clearly and that we would be ready with the word of truth to minister to those who are in pain from sin. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.